Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Thank you for joining us tonight. I want to acknowledge my co-hosts, um, Chuck Wally and Mae Wilkinson. They will be over on the Twitter tweet chat where you can interact with others and um, discuss the interview. Uh, tonight, we are spotlighting the Juvenile Bipolar Research Foundation. And the Juvenile Bipolar Research Foundation is really reinventing the way the world is going to look at child and adolescent bipolar disorder. Dr. Dmitry Popolis has dedicated his life's work to finding ways to manage, treat, and, and really understand these children. And, you know, he offered invaluable advice to parents in his best-selling book, The Bipolar Child. Um, he's continued his work and has brought us to the most cutting-edge research for this disorder and a, and a new understanding of what child bipolar disorder truly is. The foundation itself has compiled a team of researchers and scientists that are truly second to none. And tonight we will hear from Dr. Popolis himself as he returns as, as our guest. And um, he's um, joining us along with Inger Shogren, the executive director of the foundation. And they will tell us how their findings have turned the conventional understanding of child bipolar disorder upside down. Um, you know, as I said when, when Dr. Popolis was on last time, you know, um, I'm just so happy to bring this foundation to the show because I believe in them. I believe in what they're doing, and I see hope for the parents that are really struggling with these children. So let me introduce Dr. Dimitri Popolos and Inger Shogren. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you. We're happy to be here. We're so appreciative that you've made the Juvenile Bipolar Research Foundation the featured nonprofit of the month um, on the Coffee Clash. It's it's such an honor um, well, by helping uh, us to, to promote the research and by giving us the venue to present our findings. You're you're really giving a voice to a very underserved population of children who suffer from bipolar disorder. And the families, you know, it, it, it's it's mm-hmm. a disorder that just it just takes over the family. It just takes over the home, and you know that's why it's you know I, the last time you were here, you know it's 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 People are still listening to the first um, interview, and, you know, people are just were, were floored by it. And um, I really wanted to have you come back because I know a lot has happened since you were here last. So, Inger, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about the foundation and what has, you know, happened since the last time you were on? Okay. Well, the last time we were on your show was in November, and at that time Dr. Papalos was on with Alyssa Bronstein, who is our director, and they discussed and introduced um, the fear of harm phenotype, which is a, a subtype of bipolar disorder with uh, very specific um, behavior and physiological markers. And they also discussed a pilot study um, that Dr. Papalos was conducting for a, a new treatment protocol, something that's not been tried before um, on children um, suffering from bipolar disorder, and we owe you so much because it was that program, um, through that program, you helped us uh, get the news out there and get our research out there, and that show led to a matching grant challenge of $150,000 from a Bob and Wendy Wagner who were listening to your show that evening and were so impressed. Um, by the research, and they called and followed up with us, and they did their own due diligence, and it, it was really a, a vote of confidence um, to get this matching grant challenge. And that challenge snowballed into a matching gift from the Jane Coughlin and, and Connie Batson Memorial Fund. So they matched that challenge, and in, in addition to that, they issued their own challenge for another 75000 So one of our longtime supporters stepped up and met that challenge, or part of the challenge, and then the rest of our very consistent, supportive constituency helped us get all the way there. So now, where are we? We've completely funded um, the program that, that we want to do. We're, we're going to roll out a double-blind placebo trial study, and we're ready to move forward on this fully funded study as soon as we get the green light from the FDA. Oh, that is incredible. It's that very, is just... very exciting. It is really exciting. And, you know, you, you said that, you know, these people, and I'm just, 
I'm just so thankful that you know you were able to come on and these people were able to um you know to to support you and to you know fund this and you know you mentioned due diligence and you know that's really a lot of what I do also um you know we don't bring people on the show lightly and I had come to the fundraiser that you had and I I heard the scientists and I heard the researchers and you know, I'm just so confident in what you're doing. So, you know, I couldn't and, be happier. And you met one of the children that had been part of the oh, study. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I'm I'm just thrilled. And, you know, it, I'm, I'm sure that you've been very busy. <laughs> I mean, you know, you had so many things you wanted to get started. Yeah, there, there, there's, we're going full speed ahead, and Dr. Papalos and, and his team have been so busy um, trying to pave the way with the FDA, and, and it's a very important study for a very underserved, very fragile community of children. It absolutely is underserved. Um, Dr. Papalos, let me, let me ask you, um, again, welcome. Um, you know, I think there's confusion as to what childhood bipolar disorder is. And, um, you know, if you could just briefly, you know, explain to us what that is again. And what is the, the earliest age of onset that you, you think that could be diagnosed? Well, um, you know, it, uh, it's early onset bipolar disorder is quite different from, from adult onset bipolar disorder, which is um, where a lot of the confusion arises because we, we only have a, uh, a definition in the DSM that describes uh, adult onset bipolar disorder um, at the time that the um, the DSM was uh, was developed and, and published. There were really uh, there was very little um, belief in the idea that childhood onset bipolar disorder could exist, and and there were really very few studies. And and so the data that was used to establish the diagnostic categories in that, um, in the DSM, uh, were, were based completely on adult studies. And um, childhood onset bipolar disorder presents, we know now, very, very differently. Um, there are, uh, you know, in terms of the mood swings, there are very abrupt swings of mood and energy that occur multiple times within a day. There are intense outbursts of temper, poor frustration tolerance, and oppositional defiant behaviors. Um, these children veer from irritable, easily annoyed, angry mood states to silly, goofy, giddy, elated states, and then they just as easily descend into very low energy uh, periods where they describe uh, intense boredom, uh, really more of um, anhedonia uh, or lack of a sense of pleasure where they become disconnected and anxious. Um, they develop social withdrawal, um, self-recriminations, and often suicidal thoughts. Um, so um, it's, it, the, the, the major differences, I guess, between adult and early onset are the, the very rapid, abrupt swings of mood that occur during the day. And, of course, um, the work that we've done, uh, which looked at this condition using uh, a more dimensional approach um, where we uh, looked at various categories of diagnosis because, um, you know, what's been ha what, what researchers were, were beginning to find um, and reporting consistently when they looked at children that were thought to have early onset bipolar disorder was that they had many uh, comorbid or co-occurring disorders. So, you know, if you would see a child who would come in that was suspected of bipolar disorder, they would often come in having been diagnosed with an alphabet soup of uh, different conditions um, and may have been treated uh, for a variety of conditions for years uh, before bipolar disorder was uh, even considered. Many of them would be treated for, you know, many trials of uh, stimulants and then antidepressants and then finally um, there would be some idea that perhaps they didn't have this condition but it was something else. And, um, uh, uh, you know, so, so there's been, there's been uh, quite, uh, I think, a lot of diagnostic difficulty in identifying what it looks like. Um, we um, took a very different approach and began to look at um, symptoms from all of the different categories 
um, of of um, childhood psychiatric disorders, and um, uh, you know, uh, after a number of years, um, many studies uh, and a very very large population of uh, children who had been diagnosed in the community with bipolar disorder, um, for whom we have you know clinical data we were able to identify a very specific um, subtype of the condition that affects at least a third, if not more, of, um, of these children. And it, it, it is the most severe form of the disorder. And it has, um, as, as we understand, um, 33 specific symptoms um, that um, are easily identifiable We've looked at children from the age of six on up, and um, we can identify this condition rather easily, um, or at least identify it uh, through a screening instrument that has been developed, the Child Bipolar Questionnaire. Um, uh, as we can identify it as early as, as six with about 96% accuracy. Well, um, you know, Sorry. I just wanted to ask you, you know, many people refer to it as overlapping. Um, you know, I always refer to it as subgroups. But, you know, it seems that your view is that the disorder itself is dimensional. So in the past, I think people always thought there was a lot of comorbidity because there were so many different symptoms. Um, do you think that that's where the confusion has come in? Is it, is it that it's so dimensional in itself that it doesn't necessarily have all of the comorbidity with other disorders? Well, I think you have to uh, distinguish and uh, define what comorbidity means. Um, you know, when we talk about dimensional, it's um, it's it's to compare it to the to categorical approaches to diagnosis, which the DSM essentially uh, um, is. The, uh, the DSM uh, back in, um, you know, uh, the DSM-3, um, which I actually was a, I was a psychiatric resident at the time the DSM-3 was actually being developed at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, and um, two of my teachers, uh, Dr. Robert uh, um, Spitzer and uh, Dr. Gene Endicott, were the the architects of the DSM-3, um, and um, it was very clear at that point that what psychiatry needed uh, was a um, uh, diagnostic nomenclature that would allow a psychiatrist in Boston to diagnose someone um, who had a particular set of symptoms with the same condition that uh, a psychiatrist in San Francisco um, might 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 diagnose them with, and at that point in time, before the development of the DSM-3, uh, that was not the case. Um, uh, so, for uh, the uh, American psychiatry, became very important for there to be clear uh, diagnostic entities that had boundaries um, that um, that allowed reliability. Um, and there was very, very little concern about whether these these uh, diagnostic entities were valid in any way. And most people don't really know that uh, none of the diagnostic categories, either in DSM-3 or in, um, um, you know, DSM-4, uh, have ever been validated scientifically. So these are all categories that were basically uh, determined and established by expert consensus diagnosis, uh, not based on scientific evidence. Um, and um, what what um, what happened eventually is when um, uh, large-scale studies within the general population were mounted, you know, a number of years later, going into the the 90s, um, what uh, what we began to find out is that um, when you use the diagnostic criteria that were that were applied through DSM uh, three at that time, um, you ended up with five or four or three different diagnoses in in individuals in the general population, right. and um, you know that that is what 
comorbidity. That's what the term comorbidity actually means. Right. And now, it also for, was based on adult um, criteria. And we now know that, you know, the children, the criteria is much different. It's more chronic in nature. It's not as episodic. So, you know, it really, you know, I had on Dr. Alan Francis, who was the chair of the DSM-5 um, task force. And, you know, he, he had some regrets about um, the criteria that he had put in um, and felt that, you know, the disorder was being overly diagnosed. And I think if you look at it in terms of the current diagnostic criteria in the DSM-4, that, you know, I could see his reasoning. But if you look at it as it now has unfolded, as what you're presenting, as it being a dimensional disorder, you know, I think people get a lot clearer picture of what it really is and um, that it isn't really being overdiagnosed. Right. I think I think with, you know, what we have to realize is that DSM-3 and DSM-4 were very helpful in their day. Right. They they helped organize psychiatry, but that um, in terms of the way these conditions present in nature, they do not reflect the actual conditions or the the nature of the symptoms. In fact, the National Institute of Mental Health under Tom Insull um, has decided at this point, uh, because there's been very very little really um, payoff uh, for the research that's been done on DSM-4 uh, uh, categories, uh, they're no longer going to be using the DSM as a means of, um, of funding uh, um, uh, research studies. And they are moving more to a dimensional approach uh, towards a diagnosis. Um, that's what we basically went to about nine years ago uh, when we decided to look at this very confusing picture of uh, early onset bipolar disorder. So what dimensional means, for example, is that you would take all of the symptoms uh, from the various so-called comorbid conditions, you know, OCD, ODD, um, uh, various other anxiety disorders, um, and attention deficit disorder, and you would list all of those symptoms, let's say in a questionnaire, and you would um, you would you would uh, take a very large sample of children in the community who'd been diagnosed by a psychiatrist with the, um, with a bipolar disorder, and you would look at all of the symptoms that were identified as positive uh, within that large group of symptoms. So you would basically be saying, we're not going to abide by this categorical approach. We're going to expand it. We're going to include all of these symptoms. And then we're going to take a large sample of children. And then we're going to look at what sorts out from that sample. What are the, what are the major subtypes that emerge when we look at this very large population? And essentially, that's what we did. And that's what brought us to a very, very specific phenotype, which, in fact, has a physiological marker, and it's a physiological marker that has led us to understand, uh, we think, much about the biology, and has also led us to specific treatments that actually have dramatic effects on reducing the major symptoms in the condition. Now, that would not have been possible had we used DSM-4 criteria to diagnose these children. We never would have sorted out these specific subtypes that we've now identified. And, you know, I, I, you know as we said before we, we came on the air, um, you know, what, what you have found and what the fear of harm phenotype presents is what parents have been seeing for such a long time. And, um, you know, it's when the parents hear what the foundation is doing, what your findings are, I think there's going to be such relief because um, I think we've all seen it in the children. So let's start with um, the fear of harm phenotype. Mm -hmm. Yes, what you you would like uh, me to tell you a little well, bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the fear of harm phenotype is just very different from the way that it's always been looked at. And, um, you know, I, it, you, I've been posting all day, um, you know, the specifics of it. But why don't you tell us what it is and um, how you identified it? Okay. Well, um, 
using this dimensional approach and using a, a particular questionnaire that we developed that that drew together um, symptoms from all of these different categories that were um, that were considered to be comorbid, we looked at a very large sample of over three or four thousand children, and we did uh, uh, we had a very we had a very large sample of sibling pairs, um, uh, something like 250 uh, children who were biologically related who were affected. And we compared them with a group of children who were age and sex matched um, who were uh, also were diagnosed in the community with bipolar disorder, um, but who were not related biologically. And what we found was that there were a number of dimensions of behaviors, that is to say, groups of symptoms that sorted together that were actually heritable. There was uh, um, one of this, these groups of symptoms was a group that we, uh, we, we described and, and termed fear of harm. Now, what is fear of harm? Well, fear of harm basically is um, a constellation of symptoms that relates to uh, essentially fear and aggression, um, fight or flight. Uh, um, so uh, basically, um, these children would, uh, would have very, very aggressive behaviors directed towards others. Um, these aggressive behaviors were typically behaviors that involved the experience of threat. In other words, the child in some way was experiencing something between this other person and themselves as being threatening, and at that point they would become aggressive. It wasn't what's called instrumental aggression where you just sort of, you know, you get angry and you throw something at somebody. Right. It's right. provoked. It's based on the experience of threat. So these children were, and it's a know, physical. Uh, it's a physical reaction. It's a reflexive reaction that is, um, you know, uh, you know, clearly related to territoriality. At least that's the way we we saw it. Um, these children also um, uh, are afraid of their own aggression. So right. they are afraid of being aggressive towards others, um, and they also are aggressive towards themselves. So in the, in the most extreme cases, they will self-mutilate. They'll cut themselves. They'll uh, hit their heads against the wall. Um, you know, um, they're in, 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 a, in a milder sense, they're very self-punitive. And if you look at it from a cognitive perspective, they're always criticizing themselves. They feel badly about themselves. They think others are criticizing them. They think, you know, they're not loved. And um, uh, that becomes their internal world. Um, uh, so th that's the constellation of symptoms, core symptoms, uh, or a description of them that uh, I would say define uh, the fear of harm. Now, more specifically, these are kids who would, you know, hear a teacher's voice uh, go up two or three decibels and, and, and think that the teacher was angry at them and they'd right. recoil or they'd be angry at the teacher or their parents would say, no, you can't have that. And the no would be experienced as this threat where something was being taken away from them. Right, there's always an that, overreaction, right? Yeah, it's a very and the uh, perception it, seems to be off, right? Yes, it's a it's an irrational perception of threat that they're responding to that they are unable to modulate. Uh, so it's a very primitive kind of response. I mean, parents frequently talk about you know that kind of situation where the they'll say the child's eyes just glazed over and it didn't look like my child and the response was, you know, was feral, you know, sort of animalistic right. response. Some parents it's, call it's, it dark, right? Yeah, very dark response. Right. So that's, that's one of the major elements that we identified and, in fact, that was one of the features that we determined was heritable, that, that could be inherited. Um, 
there are a number of other there are five other factors that were uh that were involved um uh but perhaps that one and then what we later learned was a physiological marker that was directly linked to this phenotype um which has to do with of all things body temperature regulation and we first became aware of this when we started uh hearing um about the 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 fact that these children would overheat uh particularly at night um uh um and uh, they would they would be hot before they would go to sleep they'd wake up in the middle of the night sweating they would have many different kinds of uh, 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 arousal disorders of sleep, um, and uh, and they also had um, uh, this extreme tolerance for the cold. Uh, they could go out, you know, in shirt sleeves in the middle of the winter. You know, so many parents say that. Yeah, you know, the parents would would hear they'd be chasing after them with, with coats to try to you know try to, to try to get them uh, clothed and, and they would re- refuse because they were they were hot. I mean an extreme case that one child the parent reported that in the middle of the winter um she got so hot in the house uh she ran outside, opened the door and dove into a um a snowbank to cool herself off. Um uh so um they would also typically parents would report that their children would get would have these beet red ears um you know when they would start to get enraged about something the ears would turn beet red now um you know it took some time as we began to wonder about what these thermoregulatory factors were it turns out that the tips of the ears are basically the radiators for the brain um and that's essentially an indication that the brain is overheating. Um, uh, the, um, the thermoregulatory problems uh, we were able to clearly understand were related to the sleep disorders that also were part of this phenotype. Um, very, very specific symptoms. They have trouble getting to sleep at night. They have what's called sleep inertia, you know, uh, difficulty getting up in the morning. Parents talk about they have to, you know, they're like, you know, hibernating bears when they try to get them up um, and irritable and angry and they're half asleep until 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, and, uh, uh, and also they would describe these very significant um, arousal disorders of sleep where they would have very extreme uh, uh, nightmares and night terrors. The nightmares were blood-curdling, you know, sharks coming after them, aliens coming after them, very vivid visual nightmares that just, you know, would curl your spine. And these were regular recurrent events um, with horrific images. Um, and uh, so, so uh, they would also have bedwetting often and teeth grinding, which are also considered arousal disorders of sleep. Now, it turns out that body temperature regulation um, and uh, the, uh, the ability of the, heat, the body to dissipate heat, which regulates essentially your core you know, temperature, um, is very, very important uh, in terms of, for everybody, uh, in terms of sleep onset, going to sleep, waking up in the morning, and also transitioning from dream to non-dream sleep. So if you have some thermoregulatory deficit, some problem either in uh, the generation of heat in your body or the dissipation of heat in your body, um, basically you would potentially have all of these symptoms. Right. Uh, And, you know, since you were on last time... um, you know, so many parents I've told about it, and we're going to go into the study that you've done, um, but, you know, there were some simple things that we discussed. I think we discussed it with Alyssa um, to help regulate the body temperature when these kids sleep. 
And I told parents to try the oscillating fans blowing on the kids. And I told them to speak to their, um, you know, their clinicians about using melatonin because the thought always was melatonin induces sleep, but it really lowers the body temperature. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, if the, if the doctor allows it. I can't tell you how many parents were telling me this is amazing. I mean, it wasn't like the child was cured, but there was significant improvement. Um, and, you know, the thing that I'm curious about, though, is that is this thermal um, dysregulation, is this just in a subgroup of these children, or is this something that you pretty much see across the board? No, um, it's definitely a subgroup of children that have this. Um, about, um, we think, I mean, um, it's uh, a third or more of the children have this particular form of the condition. Um, and the, uh, that, that is to say in our sample, which now numbers around 7,000. Wow. Um, okay. About right. A third of the cases have this. And then a number of them have are sort of on the spectrum. In other words, they have a milder form. Mm-hmm. And very recently, we've actually identified a different subtype which we think is uh, not as, uh, um, uh, we, we don't really know, but we, we, we don't think it's, we don't think it's as, uh, as prevalent, but it's, it, it's the same behavioral symptoms, but the temperature problems, the temperature deficit is different. These are kids who, uh, who might live in, in Miami uh, and in 90 degree temperature they're wearing sweaters. They feel cold. How interesting! Uh, well. um, yeah. Uh, so, so that is probably another subgroup. We really have just sort of uh, been looking into that. Uh, but again, it, it has to do with, uh, you know, with um, uh, something to do with the regulation of uh, of core body temperature. And you know, with the fear of harm. You know, it was when, when I did the interview with you last time, when I got off the phone with you, um, I spoke with Temple Grandin because um, she has been talking about um, fear being a core emotion for behavioral issues in autism for a long time. And, um, you know, it, I, I interview a lot of experts involved with children and teens with mental illness, and I'm always hearing fear as being a core emotion. And, you know, it just, it, 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 the, it's almost everybody I speak to. I mean, I, I've interviewed Dr. Sweeto, Dr. Barkley. Fear is always at the core of this. And, you know, if fear is regulated by the um, amygdala and the pituitary adrenal axis, is, is that involved at all in what you're finding? Well, uh, the amygdala is part of uh, – there, there, there are a number of ways in which uh, – the expression and uh, the, uh, I guess, fear sensitization is uh, occurs. The amygdala is definitely, and the hippocampus are the site of, um, of uh, fear sensitization. It's where um, perceived imagery, you know, is uh, determined. It's determined whether it's a, a fearful image, and, and a certain valence is. Uh, Associated with with the image, and then and then basically um, recorded in memory, uh, allegedly in the in the hippocampus. But yes, the amygdala is the is considered the um, central um, nucleus uh, for fear sensitization. Well, you know, a lot of the children. I mean, they're considered. I mean, I consider them to just be really treatment resistant. I find very few families that um, the Traditional medications are helping. I mean, honestly, and in most cases, not in most, a lot of cases, it's making the kids worse. So you are now doing a study, um, and what are, what are you doing, and what are you finding? Well, we we um, once we had identified this particular phenotype, and we had, we had this group of symptoms, it pointed us uh, very directly to a specific region of a pathway in the brain that we think is not just involved with the fear of harm phenotype, but with probably a spectrum of disorders that are related to bipolar disorder as we now describe it. Um, that and the uh, the realization uh, that uh, Body temperature regulation was a was a marker for this. Um, 
led us to ask the question whether there were any um, agents, any treatments that were available um, that would, you know, um, uh, in, in, the, in the first instance, uh, uh, reduce body temperature. And that's when we first, um, oh, three, four years ago, maybe longer, uh, decided that we were going to try to use melatonin and oscillating fans um, at night to see if we could um, improve the sleep disturbance that these children had. And um, so uh, melatonin uh, is um, a lowers body temperature. It uh, opens up the vascular bed, and uh, so it helps to dissipate heat. And, of course, ventilating fans are uh, also dissipate heat from the body if they're, you know, 10 inches away or so from some open area of skin. And about 90% of the kids that we treated had, had rather dramatic responses in terms of the uh, regulation of their sleep. The night terrors went away. They were able to get to sleep at night. They were they lost the sleep inertia in the morning. And, and it, was a, it had a major and dramatic effect. But it didn't um, resolve the the syndrome completely um, and uh, so it was it was helpful and we asked ourselves well you know what you know are there agents that might be um, helpful um, that are available uh, that both reduce fear sensitization and um, and reduce body temperature and in fact uh, there are and we uh, decided to, uh, to choose one of them uh, and we began using it in a pilot study which we've been doing now for about two years um, I think the, I think when we talked to you in November we had about 12 kids that had been treated yes um, it was a small we, group right we now have 25 um, and 25 with this particular phenotype, um, and two who were treatment refractory, that is to say they weren't responding well to um, any of the traditional medications, but um, uh, uh, we decided even though they did not have the full phenotype to also try uh, this treatment. Um, and um, the 25 that have the fear of harm phenotype have all responded and with I would say, for the most part, almost a complete abolition of symptoms. Rapid oh, my God. That's incredible. I saw it with my own eyes. I mean, I met the young man at the um, dinner, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I, I he, he told his story of what his life was like and what his quality of life, life was like. And, you know, in speaking to his father, I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It was really just astounding, the difference in him. Yeah, it, it was spectacular. And the, the thing that was so amazing for us and for everyone at that dinner was that this was a, a young man of age that could so well explain what was going on internally. Yes, it was amazing. He, he could vocalize what was going on, whereas a lot of our five, six, seven-year-olds, I mean, they just can't do that. So that that was so this, this was a young man for our audience. This was a young man who could not leave his home. He had no quality of life. Um, y- you could just tell that he he was just tortured by the disorder. And um, it was like he was just brought completely out of it. And, I mean, it was just incredible. So, you know, so go ahead and, and talk about, um, you know, what you're doing. I'm curious to hear, because I know back then with the 12, that it was incredible that there was – significant is putting it mildly improvement in all of the children which is remarkable and now there's 25 i mean that is remarkable yeah i have to say this is pretty remarkable i've never seen seen anything like it in my life um it's um uh you know it is really i think um in many ways going to transform the treatment at least for this subgroup of kids um who have the condition um We've, I mean, I can tell you a few things that we've learned, um, you know, uh, in the younger children, uh, it uh, seems to be, work very rapidly. Um, and um, uh, what, Very rapidly as far as days, weeks? D- d- days. Wow. Um, you know, um, and um, 
and the older kids, that well, they have a response. They're, you know, if they've started their illness, you know, at age three or four, uh, there is a, you know, an accumulation of behavioral, you know, a repertoire that's developed over a period of time that's been learned. And um, even though the um, the underlying uh, symptoms are, you know, resolved, uh, it's um, there's almost like a secondary treatment that has to be done more of kind of the psychotherapy uh, to help them um, reestablish a different way of behaving in the world because they're so used to this sort of monotonic, uh, you know, um, uh, way of behavior. I mean, basically, what these what happens with these kids is they get in, you know they get into a um, uh, uh, a relational pattern that has mostly to do with dominance and submission. You know, right. That that's the behaviors that you know that are associated with fight or flight, and um, so it 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 requires a, a a whole set of social skills training and coming to terms with a perspective of what's happened you know over the long period of time that they were ill and no longer ill, and because the the change occurs so rapidly. Um, it's it's um, you know it's it's very hard in that in that regard. I would um, imagine. So, I mean, normalcy is so foreign to these children. You know, they, they well, don't socially. They usually they really don't have a lot of friends. A lot of them are, are home um, schooled because they can't go out. And you know, as you said about the acquired skills, we talk about that very often here on the Coffee Clutch. That a lot of the behaviors is due to a lack of acquired social and coping skills. But in this case, it's a physiological problem. Which leads to a set of behaviors that you know that get ingrained and that are difficult to change, uh, despite the fact that what was fueling them uh, is no longer fueling them, and that's uh, you know that's I mean more of a reason to really try to identify these kids early on and treat them as soon as as soon as possible. Um, I mean that's the one thing that sort of impresses me over and over again, uh, particularly when I see the responses in the young children. Um, well, what are the short-term and the long-term? Have you seen short-term or long-term side effects? And how long have these children um, been using, have been in the study using this medication um, that you can tell that it's it's working consistently? Because it has to be a while because, you know. Well, we have... We have we have uh, several children who've been who've been treated for about two and a half years. Um, fantastic. They're um, stable. There have been no long-term side effects. I mean, the, the side effects are mostly acute. They happen within the first half hour to 45 minutes. Um, they tend to diminish actually over time. There's a tolerance for these uh, the side effects and. Um, so, you know, after six months or so, um, while the, uh, the, the, the effectiveness of the drug persists, um, the side effects tend to diminish. But they don't tend to last more than 45 minutes to an hour, and they're pretty tolerable for most yeah, The boy was saying that it was, they were very mild. I mean, this treatment is not yet available. Um, but you know, hopefully, with continued um, you know continued work on this, you will get this um, done into these children because even a third of the population is a huge population for struggling kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we hope to get this as uh, as Inger said. Uh, we hope to get a, a approval from the FDA to go ahead and do this uh, double blind um, placebo controlled study, and then we'll be able to report on it and. Uh, you know, get the word out and hopefully um, encourage other, um, you know, other psychiatrists to begin to think about it, um, you know, for this phenotype. I mean, it, right. It, right. Uh -huh. and, and I was going to say before, you know, the, the other cases that we have tried that do not have the phenotype have not responded in the way that these other children do. So although right. we can't say it with really any certainty, it does seem to really be um, at least in some ways specific for um, for this group of kids that have um, this, you know, this phenotype. Well, I know that there is a lot of excitement and anticipation by um, psychiatrists. I know I've spoken with um, 
Dr. Richard Pleak here in New York, and you know he was well aware of it. There, there is a lot of excitement about this because, as I said earlier, that there really isn't any treatment that's working for these children. Um, before we go um, a little bit further, I just wanted to mention. I remember the last time you were on, you spoke about a novel monitor device. Um, was that used to tell if a child was in this subgroup? I don't remember. No. Um, about a year and a half, two years ago, when we realized that there was um, there was a, this thermoregulatory deficit and there were sleep problems, et cetera, we uh, decided that we wanted to develop um, a, a a monitor that would allow us to measure uh, various uh, types of uh, body temperature, including peripheral core, uh, tympanic membrane temperature, as well as um, EEG, uh, pulse oximetry, uh, galvanic skin response, heart rate, and activity level. So um, we were very fortunate to find a group of former uh, NASA engineers down in um, the Houston area that uh, uh, were willing to take on the project. And... um, We've now uh, we're about to um, to get the prototype. It's actually coming within the next few weeks, um, and we're going to be piloting it. We have to, we have to test it out first, but we're planning to use it uh, in this double-blind placebo-controlled study so that we can uh, you know look at pre and post uh, uh, to changes in um, you know in these various physiological parameters. Uh, pre-treatment and post-treatment. You know, and and given what we've seen now in the last 12 or 13 cases, uh, there does seem to be a direct correlation between um, the changes in the thermoregulatory deficit and the behavioral improvement. Um, So um, we're going to have a really uh, pretty nifty um, uh, um, device to be able to measure that and to give us, uh, you know, an objective measurements of uh, that may help us um, to predict response, um, um, you know, in the future. Right. And you know, it's just incredible because you know when when I'm listening to you, it makes sense to me why the traditional medications haven't been working. Um, you know, so and you know, as you said, you have this subgroup that's you know always hot, and there's another subgroup that's always cold. So, you know, what do you think the problem has been with the traditional treatments? Well, I don't think they target the you know the specific um, uh, circuits in the brain that are responsible for the the, the major symptoms, at least in this phenotype. Um, for these kids that that we're that we're treating now, I mean, many of these kids, um, you know, I've seen for years, and they've been, I think, treated pretty well with the most, you know, with traditional medications. They're usually on three or four different medications, and, you know, they sleep pretty well. They, uh, their mood swings are, you know, well modulated, pretty well modulated. Um, The aggression is less, but they still have this, primary, these primary problems around aggression and fear of harm. And all of the um, traditional medications typically sort of, um, I guess you could say suppress or dampen that aspect of the condition. Um, But in those kids where it's primary, um, you know, you really have, um, you know, children who developmentally have a lot of problems uh, simply right. because they're, you know, they have these very significant aggressive impulses that are poorly modified, and and significant fears that uh, play themselves out in the social arena. And it really just it it, it does so much damage to um, relationships with siblings and parents. You know, I wrote um, last week. I had written a blog about you know having to try to have compassion for these children because they really are suffering. And, you know, as hard as it is to be the parent, and trust me, I understand how hard it is to deal with a raging child. Imagine being that child and having no control of your emotions and being afraid that you're going to hurt someone. You know, and parents have to really start looking at the disorder with different eyes. It's it's horrible. 
you put your finger on the pulse. That's exactly what's going on. And 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 these children know, in essence, that that uh, that nobody understands them. <laughs> you know, right. which is worse because uh, you know nobody can articulate usually. Um, you know what it is that they're feeling, and they can't articulate it. And they learn as they get older, obviously, as you get socialized, that, you know, expressing aggressive impulses, you know, is not something that uh, is well tolerated by the, you know, by the social world. And, you know, until you start to get a handle on it and you start to calm down the situation in the child and in your home, it's very difficult to communicate with these kids. You know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know, as we spoke last time, um, you know, my daughter had severe anxiety disorder, panic attacks, you know, and mood issues. And um, nothing worked for her. And we, I wound up taking her to um, a doctor who practiced Chinese medicine. And she told me that in China, these children, that it's a heat dysregulation and that they shift the heat in the body. And it was just, you know, and then I met you and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, something's got to be going on because, you know, my daughter is a different child now. But um, so how how do you think that this is going to be received? How much longer do you think it would take for this to be approved so that at least this subgroup of children would be able to get some relief? Approved in the sense of uh, the FDA uh, approval. Uh, this, um, you know, we're hoping it will happen at least by the end of the summer. We'll or sooner. You're kidding! Um, wow. But we, well, we hope we approval to do the study, not not approval for the right. drug to be used for this indication. That's another. That's a longer process. But you know, um, psychiatrists, um, as as I am, I mean, can use these. Uh, any medication mm-hmm. off label um meaning um even if i mean there are many drugs that are used to treat bipolar disorder in children that are off label they're not they haven't been approved for you know younger ages so um this is just a very very different type of medication um so um uh, uh, I, I think getting the word out or you know publishing our data which we hope to do over the next you know four or five months once we uh you know um you know uh, at least the pilot study and then um but hopefully we're going to we've developed a um a strategy where we hope to be able to complete the study once we get the go ahead within a year um you know then you know probably 6 months later we'll get something published and uh, you know, and then um, the, you know this kind of um, uh, this kind of information you know needs to get into peer-reviewed journals before you know other uh, physicians usually are willing to consider using the medication. Uh, so, so you know, it's unfortunately, I mean, it, it takes a long time, right. but uh, you know, there's there's reason to be cautious right now. It's very it's preliminary. Um, we've had we've only had a couple of kids that have you know been on it for a couple of years. So um, you know one has to be cautious. I think about um, you know jumping up and down and proclaiming that you have a a cure all for for anything. But um, right. so you know. But you know I know there are a lot of psychiatrists that are chomping at the bit to hear how this is going to turn out. I can tell you that um, because you know I think parents get very frustrated with psychiatrists because they feel that they're just throwing drugs at their kids. But I think in all fairness, I mean, you know, like yourself, you're trying to help these kids and you're using what you've got. I mean, what you've got may not be working, but you're trying, you know. Uh, so I think it's frustrating for, for both the parent and the clinician. Very much so. I, um, I, have I, you I gone have... any further on the um, – I remember we spoke briefly um, about the um, the genome study. Was that something you're still going to be pursuing? The what? The um, the whole genome study, the sequence. Um, we're still collecting. Um, you know, we're collecting samples from actually, you know, from children who have this particular phenotype. Um, you know, we continue to get. I don't know. You know, four or five or six samples a month. Um, you know, it would be nice to be able to, um, you know, get more funding so we could really. Extend the study out and uh, and get more samples, but you know it's it's a, a genome wide study is something that's such a it's a long uh, 
process because you you, you know you have to get like a thousand samples before it's worth um, you know spending the right. money to do. Although um, the longer we go, the cheaper it becomes to do to do sequencing. So um, you know within another year, uh, the price uh, uh, you know to do a genome-wide sequencing may come down significantly, and we may be able to actually do, you know, actually uh, individual uh, genome sequencing, which, uh, you know, which might be possible. I mean, that that's... Um, well, I can you tell know. you, I w- you, you most certainly have the uh, scientists and the researchers, because uh, I was very, very impressed uh, with the team that you've put together. You've got a good team. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Um, you know, I, I would like for you to just now speak to the parents and just, um, you know, as you said, you know, what you're working on is, is, a, is a bit, you know, in the future. And there are a lot of people you know suffering. So, you know, wh- what advice do you have? What hope can you give these parents? Well, look, I think that we are really poised to make, um, you know, some major breakthroughs over the next, you know, three or four years. And um, the question is uh, how fast, uh, um, you know, either the, the, the experimental treatments that we're trying now are going are gonna to get out there. Uh, and I'm sure they're even, you know, now that we kind of, we, we have a good sense of what systems are involved, um, you know, I'm sure pharmaceutical companies are going to get to work and, and look for other um, uh uh, molecules that uh, have similar effects and, right. um, you know, begin to study them. So I, I'm, you know, uh, uh, a year ago I would never have been as hopeful as I am now. I mean, I, I, I it's, uh, uh, you were describing how um, frustrating it is for the parents and also for the clinicians. They're really, you know, there were treatments that they, you know, you'd, you'd end up putting a child on four or five different medications and it really, you know, didn't really fully address the condition. I think now we're, you know, we're close to being able to, um, at least for a large group of these kids, uh, you know, really make a huge difference in their lives uh, and right. uh, really uh, interfere with what clearly is like is a major developmental arrest. Um, in this condition, um, when you see the changes that are wrought by something that actually works, you realize how hampered the child is and how held back they are uh, and how they are arrested developmentally when this when this stuff starts at an early age. Right. So, oh, it's, you know, it's, oh, it's horrible. It's just horrible for these young children. We only have um, about two minutes left, but um, I really want to thank you for coming back. I want to thank you for what you do. I mean, you've dedicated your life to this, and, um, you know, it just has to be so rewarding. I mean, you started off when, you know, the, the, everyone was just so confused about what to do with this disorder. And, you know, the things that this foundation is doing is just incredible. Um, Inger, can you just tell me what more can we do to support your foundation? What can what can parents do to help um, to help you? Well, it's, it's, it's always talking and spreading the word. It's reading the research that comes out, keeping, keeping up with publications and changes on our website, um, um, fundraising activities, of course, always. But even with this this piece that we have fully funded already, um, we're going to have to be recruiting talent to, um, to, to help us in this study, um, different nurse practitioners, um, Dimitri, um, statisticians. Well, you know what I like hearing? I like hearing that you have, not, you have the funding to get the research done and that you're able now to bring on even more incredible people. Yeah, I mean, that's important. just, I mean, it's just, it's it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, as I've told the parents, you know, we do our due diligence, and I am telling you, this is just, top-notch foundation doing amazing things for these children. So I really thank you for joining us. And um, hey, the next time something new happens, give me a call. Oh, okay. Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you, Marilyn. Very <laughs> pleasure thank to be you. here. Okay. Uh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Before we end, I have a few announcements. 
um, Dana uh, Commandatory, who is the founder of Rethinking Autism. Everybody knows her from her unbelievable videos. Um, She is joining the Coffee Clatch. She is going to be one of our hosts. Uh, Denise Goldberg, who is the founder of um, Special Education Advisor, probably the best special education advising website you will ever see. This woman is amazing. She is joining the Coffee Clutch team, and she will be hosting. So we have great things coming your way. We really appreciate you joining us. And as I end the show each day, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight on the Coffee Clutch.